Today, I'm very happy to welcome Andrea Safaraku to OECD's Top Class podcast. Andrea is an arts and textiles teacher and senior leader at Alperton Community School. In 2018, she beat out more than 30,000 nominees to win the Varkey Foundation Global Teacher Prize. That's essentially the Nobel Prize for teaching. The school she teaches at, Alperton Community School, is a secondary school in Brent, which is one of London's poorest areas. 43% of children there live below the poverty line. Against these kinds of odds, Alperton is a remarkable success story. It is in the top 1-5% to of the country in terms of qualifications and accreditations. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they have one of the best teachers in the world. Andrea has written a book about being a teacher that's just come out. It's called Those Who Can Teach, What It Takes to Make the Next Generation. So welcome, Andrea. Hi, Claire. It's so lovely to be here. The title, I guess, is a play on those who get, can paint or whatever, paint, and those who can't teach. That's a nice little joke on everybody who says that, right? Yeah, no, I, well, it's, it's a horrible, horrible saying that, you know, if you can't, if, you, if, if you're not good at anything, they're just going to teaching, which, as we all know, is a big, big mistake because that's not what it's really about. So when you won in 2018, what did your students say to you? Well, at first, they were, when they first saw me, they were quite nervous because, you know, Miss was on the TV for the last week or so and, and she was popping up everywhere. But once we got back into our lessons, uh, it was just the same as always. But what's been really lovely is the fact that I mean, it's been probably three years since winning the award and still we are feeling that glow, you know, that wonderful feeling of pride because, you know, people are still contacting us saying, oh, can I come and visit the school? You know, students are really proud of wearing their uniform. The community is a great buzz in the community. So although it's been a while back, it's still lingering here. And that's a good thing. Could you tell us about the kids who go to Alberton? I mean, for those who haven't read the book yet. So, I mean... I think that's one of the reasons, the kids are the reasons why I've stayed in my school for the last 15 years. So they, we, we have 1,600 plus students on roll and we teach from years 11, so age 11 to 18. And it's a wonderfully diverse school community. So, you know, we are in the heart of Brent, which is in London, UK. And if I was to say to you how many white British children we have on roll, you can count them on one hand. So it's extraordinarily diverse and multicultural school. And as we are an inner city school, like many inner city schools, there are lots of problems and challenges. And um, our students do come from, well, they do experience lots of poverty and neglect. And uh, they have social economic problems as well at home. And yeah, they, they have extraordinarily tough lives. I mean, you, you said in your book that a lot of things need to be fixed even before the teaching and learning can, can begin. Could you go into that for us? So there is, a, there is an assumption that teaching is, you know, we just go into our classrooms, we stand at the doors, we stand at the front, and then we teach our subject and that's it. And, you know, all of that information goes through the child's head. Well, in reality, teaching is not like that and teaching in my school is not like that. We know that many of our young people have got issues and have come from um, broken homes and sometimes for them making their way in independently into school is just, you know, that, that's that's a miracle. So 
as teachers, we have got so many different challenges that we are faced with because our young people are faced with challenges. So if we get that part right, so if we support those pastoral concerns, then the rest of what teaching is about can really happen. A lot of that sometimes has to do with just from reading your book, getting, you know, ironing the school uniform and getting it getting it to them so that they could feel good about themselves. A lot of it had to do with school uniform. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because in the UK we do have uniforms, and um, I mean, there's always pros and cons. But for me, it's the sign that you're part of a community. So I am always kind of pro uniforms because you can't really differentiate income that your parents have by wearing uniform. Everyone is the same. However, you can see that some students are more affluent than others, and you know, just sometimes by looking like everyone else or or the pictures which are in the school brochures or prospectus. By having that on your back and wearing that, that just makes you feel important and just the same as anyone else. And sometimes not to stand out is a good thing for our young people. I want to talk a little bit more or ask your views on this idea of, you know, people coming from different backgrounds and and then having a, a level playing field. In PISA, our test results have shown consistently that students from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, that they don't do as well on the test as advantaged students. And in 2018, advantaged students scored 89 points more on average than those who came from poorer backgrounds. But Alberton is kind of like a case study in students from largely disadvantaged backgrounds who are doing stupendously well. How is the school doing it? I think it's because we really inject the idea that everyone can. We, you know, we have high expectations and high aspirations. And sometimes we do have to be slightly mean to be kind. And, um, and we make sure that we get the parents on board. And I think it's also about having those role models. So having the role models in the classrooms teaching you people from who have grown up in the same estate as you or um, people who look like you wear a hijab and are women teaching science. This is really aspirational. And sometimes the, the barriers and the blocks are from the mindsets that are created at home. So parents can almost kind of provide, you know, they have the ceiling already there for the young people. Our job is to make sure that they can break that ceiling. Our job is to make sure that they can aspire and they can see the role models right in front of them. They're real human beings who have started where they have started, but look what they have gone to achieve. So what do you call that? Is that high aspirations, high expectations? But that's that's what we try to encompass in our young people. I, I also understand that you have something like 35 different languages are spoken at the school and that you are able to say some basic things in, in all of them. Is, is that true? Well, so I, I was born in the UK, but I came from um, a family where English wasn't my first language. My parents were migrants to the country and speaking Greek was my first was was my language. And I always used to remember how the challenges when my grandmother used to take me to school, you know, saying good morning and trying to hold a conversation was a big deal for her. And it was quite embarrassing at times. And there's also this hierarchy, I feel that, you know, um, 
people are intimidated by the school system, especially some families, especially families who are illiterate themselves. So just by sometimes saying and greeting a child in their own language, so it could be hola or um, namaste, uh, it, it's just a, a kind thing. And sometimes the giggles and the, the smiles you get from the young people, oh, miss can speak my language, you know, it's... It's a sign of kindness. It's a sign of uh, we accept you. And uh, and that's very important, especially in a very diverse community. Yeah, and I guess that establishes like a good feeling, a good relationship mm. with, with the with the teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just and I just love languages. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I won't say I'm particularly good at it, but um I just love I just love them. I just love learning new things. In your art class you also tend to use art from different students from their from their cultures too before you know going into whatever you're supposed to be teaching why is that important i think that's important because you know just imagine my classroom it's full it's full of you know it's it's the un (laughs) it's all the nationalities of the world is in my classroom and um, how do you engage young people? And I think the question is to engage young people, just bring their world into your world, you know, be interested in what they come from. And sometimes by teaching and sharing the arts of their world, the buy-in is so huge because they feel proud. Miss is interested about Islamic art. Or Miss, we have that picture in our wall at home. We have that mask on our wall at home. And, or Miss, we do that for Diwali. And I just think that by sharing and um, experiencing other people's cultures, it just makes you aware that everyone is special and everyone comes from a very different experience that needs to be celebrated. I find that works tremendously well. And also it's much more interesting. People are more inspired than sometimes, you know, copying from worksheets or doing the same old artists that every every school does and every country does. So yeah, it's, it's important to do this. It's also tricky balancing what you have to to teach in the curriculum and then what you were just talking about they're responding to what what they bring to the class and and what they want to do i remember there's a story that you told in your book about a class that you taught early on i think you were teaching them graphic fonts <laughs> and uh you had some a whole class planned but they sort of wanted to do go in a certain direction and you sort of had to chuck your class and just go with what they wanted to do and 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 you said you said something very interesting is that you have to kind of create classes for them you have to personalize it and I'm wondering how how difficult is that and how do you juggle that with what the curriculum demands sometimes I do go a bit rogue (laughs) uh, to be honest with you but for me, it's about, you know, sharing, you know, I, I'm blessed because I teach art and I can, I can, it's the best subject in the world, you know, it's, and it's, you know, when you meet me and you come into my art room, you know that I just want to share it with everyone. I want everyone to feel that experience. So if my students are, are not feeling that same vibe, then they won't remember, they won't, they won't absorb that energy or they won't have benefited at all. So by being able to meet them on their ground I suppose on their level and by still creating and changing the technique or changing the media which you're still delivering the curriculum but you're doing it in a different way I think that's a win-win situation and um, I think that's one of the that's one of the skills which teachers have we have to solve problems 
And the problem that I had for this class, and you're absolutely right, this was my during my trainee year, which was the most challenging, challenging class I've ever had, whereby, you know, as, as I mentioned in my book, the expectation put on me was, Andrea, just keep them in the classroom. Just stop them from leaving the classroom. Now, you know, when you're giving those instructions, you know that this is going to be, you know, you're going to have to come out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to work 10 times as hard and spend 10 times as many hours planning a lesson and trying to get it right and getting the resources right, even if it's just for that half an hour. But at the end of the day, it's, it's worth the investment. You've also redesigned or worked with a team to redesign the curriculum for all the subjects in Alberton. What are the most important changes you, you made? When we first started at Alperton, and, and again, I was I was quite lucky with the art department initially, the head teacher who employed us just wanted to revitalize the department, to get new ideas and see where we're going from there and, and you know, really push education. And at that time, the school did have and was experiencing challenges, big, big challenges. Um, and I think it's about listening to the community, working with the team, trying to see how can you get the best out of young people? How, what is it that you can do to get the best out of young people? And then from there, see where you can go. What kinds of changes did you make in, say, for example, in a chemistry class or math class? Oh, I think it's about the leadership, isn't it? It's about making sure that the leadership is in line, that there is, and this is a really rare thing, Claire, I mean, when often do you have a chance to do this? But in terms of collaboration, when do when does a maths teacher sit with an art teacher and say, right, okay, let's, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing this. And what are you doing? I'm doing this. Oh, shouldn't we, let's just share, shall we, shall we, shall we kind of do some cross-curricular work? But I think things like that have got to take place. And it's such a great environment and place being at the school. And these conversations happen naturally. Um, they happen naturally because it was a tough school. And, uh, and that's how things started to change. Opportunities happen. You know, teachers were coming in and saying, oh, do you know what? I can do taekwondo. Why don't I do taekwondo after school? So it, I think it's a case of keeping things flexible, keeping things open and taking things from there. Now, you open the book with a story about Alberton receiving students with learning difficulties. The teachers in our later survey, they said that they didn't feel that they have enough professional development mm. in working with students with special needs. Mm. And I'm wondering, what kinds of things do you cover in your professional development sessions on that subject? You see, this I, I would agree, from personal experience, I would agree with that. I think this is a world which much, much more needs to be done, especially in teacher training. So, for example, when I was teaching... And I was training, there wasn't much emphasis on all the different types of learning, um, special educational learning um, skills which a student had or did not have. And I think it was like I was learning on the job. Sometimes a member of the special educational needs department would come up with me and say, oh, Andrea, did you know? And I was like, well, actually, no, I didn't. And so what do I need to do? You know, how can this student learn better? And just by speaking to other teachers, oh, no, I sit them here or I sit them there or try using, try sitting them or try speaking to them like this. So I don't think I will ever stop learning about special educational needs. And I think sometimes looking back and thinking about some of the students who who weren't assessed at that time, 
Um, and from what I know now, I would have said, oh, if only I tried something different, if only I tried this, then maybe they would have achieved better or more. But um, no, I completely agree with that survey. But then it's such a huge area and it's a bit of a mind, not not mindful, but it's just, it's huge, it's a labyrinth once you're in that world and there's so much to explore, there's so much to learn as well. So yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> we'll need five years to, to train to be specialists in, 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 that, in that field, I'd say, but yes. <laughs> if the government were to come to you tomorrow and they said, hey, Andrea, we're looking for three amazing ideas to make school better for students and teachers, what would you say? Oh, I'd say focus on ensuring that there's opportunities for young people to be to experience creativity. And it's not just about, you know, put them in an art room, but really, really thinking about training your teachers to be creative as much as creative. A science teacher is probably, you know, they should naturally be creative because of, of the way that um, science is taught and science can be. So it's really focusing on creativity in schools. How can we have a creative community? Um, the second thing I would love to focus on is something which we're noticing can sometimes disappear when you're in a school, and that's things we call it character building. So little things like you know how to be a good citizen, you know how to you know learning about other people, thinking outside of the textbook, thinking beyond the textbook. What's happening in your community? What's happening in the world? You know how do we feel about this? How should we respond? What are you feeling? So really thinking beyond what's happening in the classroom, just to get our young people thinking out of their tiny little boxes, which they quite enjoy being sometimes, I'd say. And the third thing I would say would be invest more time and more support in training teachers. So ensuring that there is fantastic amount of budgets allocated so that we can provide high quality really really good professional development for our um, teachers and just let me know if you want me to give you a four and five and six and seven and eight. Oh, the list is endless yes <laughs> what about because of the pandemic i mean I'm, i hesitate to say post-pandemic but just after the year and a half that we've had with school closures and how we've had to cope what should schools and what should the education ministry be concentrating on to, I don't know, do catch up with students or what are we missing? Just getting them back into school so that they are with their peers. I think just getting them in the right mental mindsets whereby they can just be themselves and, and be with their friends. I think we, we do not and we can't really evaluate and highlight the importance of what it's meant for them not to be with their friends. It's had a huge effect, a huge effect. We can, we know that from the language and what's coming out from their mouths and how the impact of being at home the whole time has caused for our young people. And some of these cases we're picking up now and it's, a, and it's a huge challenge, a huge challenge. And most of it is coming out through their behavior, which has been extremely difficult. So for me, what I would suggest is making sure they're back on track, that they are, 
you know, 99% okay in themselves, their well-being, their mindsets, you know, what their aspirations are, you know, them being brave, them taking more risks, them coming forward and leading, leading their learning as it would be, rather than just saying, this is what you've got to do to catch up. Because actually, that's a really negative word, catching up. Catching up means that you are not doing as good as, you know, what you should be doing or everyone else. Well, you know, this, we shouldn't be using that word. You know, we shouldn't be saying that you are you are bad. You've missed out so much, you know, because some of our students haven't. How have they been feeling? What, what have they been telling you? I think they have just loved coming in. It's, you know, just being with their friendship groups as well, playing, you know, giving their childhood back again. You know, you know, when you go into our school playground, it's the funniest thing in the world. You see teachers on the periphery absolutely terrified because you've got um, cricket balls being thrown everywhere. You've got basketballs somewhere in one corner. You've got the footballs in one corner, you know, and uh, it's just lovely to see them just playing, 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 you know, seeing their friends going through that whole process again of, of learning how to communicate, of learning the etiquetteness of, of relationships, you know. So that's been quite ex- interesting but we're also seeing the knock-on effects of being at home with and I, sometimes I, I hesitate to say this word but family but sometimes it's not really what we would assume is a you know the right definition of a family and what they're experiencing from that you know that the huge responsibilities they've had to uh, have from being uh, at home maybe the carers of the family so it's just been it's been so valuable for them to be 11 or 12 or 13 years old again. And we shouldn't underestimate that. Do you find that you have better relationships with their parents or guardians or their carers because of this extraordinary situation we've been going through? Well, see, we've been very lucky because we've always had a really good relationship with the families because it is a case of, you know, just from, from the onset, if you want your child to succeed, we will get them there. But we need you with us to make this happen. And it's a three-way relationship it's not just school and your child it's school your child and you as well so I think we've always had a relationship what we've probably found out more is what has never been disclosed before so we've learned more about families more about the struggles more about the challenges more about child protection issues vulnerability than we thought was possible and sometimes you know, many of our communities, it's a bit of a taboo, really, for a school to contact the parent and to, you know, to have a parents coming into a school, invited in for a meeting. But we're finding that we're having to have many of those now because of what our young people are telling us. So has some of the things that they've been going through, because of all the time that they're spending online too, have has that come to your attention more sort of a digital origin to... Uh, maybe not traumas, but perhaps problems or unhappinesses? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think, I mean, some of the things which I've noticed is that the students who have that really perfect home environment, you know, I suppose the the full support, whether it's mum or dad or mum and dad, but the financial resources, the space, you know, the, the free meals a day, the quiet, the peace the lack of other responsibilities a young person needs to do we've seen that those students have thrived they've shined they've shot they're they're shining um in the past they were the quiet students who would sit at the back and almost you know experience passive learning but through the lockdown they've just been able to you know be independently independent and been able to really 
thrive in what they're doing and, and, and just, you know, take ownership of their learning. However, when you have the students who probably don't have that parental support as much as we would like and have the challenge which some parents provide to their young people, to their, to their, to their children, and we've noticed that they're the ones who have not engaged as effectively as we would like. And it, it comes down to it, to the fact with well, actually, you've noticed that relationships are just breaking up in the family. The fact that parents can't, are not parenting or not able to parent their own children. And they're, they're leaving it to the, to the schools to do this for them. That is a reality now, you know, we've got to, we have now got to pick up the pieces. We've got to now mend those relationships, do the best that we can do to, regardless of what's happening at home, just keep that, you know, keep a focus on that young person to try and help them get back into the routine of being at school, of achieving, of having aspiration of, you know, you can go to college, you know, you can be this, you know, you can do that. You know, it's not all about you. So giving them the opportunities and opening their eyes to what is possible. I think I'm going to end our conversation with this question is what can the OECD, in your opinion, focus on more in improving education? Are we going in the right direction? What are some things that you think need, well, more data that you would find useful? I just find that the work that the OECD is exceptional because what you're doing is, you know, you've got such a great global eye on, on everything. You're able to tell us the stories and, and the experiences of what's happening just in not in my community, but uh, across the sea, across other, other regions as well. And I really value that. I think it would be really exciting opportunity now to see what changes have taken place because of what we've all just experienced through COVID. You know, how is assessment changing? What are schools and ministries doing about assessments? What are ministries doing about the curriculum? Or what, what other opportunities are schools thinking about offering? How are schools working with industry? Where is it successful? So I think there's so much that can be achieved and, um, and we do automatically go to the OECD. <laughs> Uh, for the answers to some of these challenges but I, I think those are good places to start well Angie I wish you had been my teacher oh no way <laughs> somebody interviewed me recently and said oh if only my school was full of you and I said if every teacher taught like me then your children would need help <laughs> no I just yeah I think that's the beauty about teaching the different personalities that teachers have and the different way that young people they attract themselves or they just slowly migrate to one particular personality for that reason I think that's really special that's why you should never have too many of Andrea's in the school oh I'll take your word for it then <laughs> well thank you very much for talking to me Andrea oh it's my pleasure Claire thank you really enjoyed this chat I'm Clara Young to learn more about what we've been talking about read Andrea's book those who can teach to find out more about the OECD's work on education, go to our Twitter page. Our handle is at OECDEDU skills. <laughs>